The Daily Tap is live for Tuesday. We're going to talk about why Andrew Wiggins' big games make Bucks fans face a tough reality. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about why Alan Lazard is a number one receiver, the case to be made for it, and why the Packers should get in on the ground floor. We'll also preview the Metsboro series and one of the biggest series for the Brew Crew all year. Before we get going, I uh, want to make sure that you are following along on social media, tapping the keg on Twitter, tapping the keg sports on Instagram and TikTok. Heard some feedback about the reels. Um, the music has been a little too loud on some of them. Much apologize for that. Uh, I will fix that. I will turn down the music. I feel like I'm loud enough to talk where I can go past the music, but apparently I cannot. So that's okay. That's all good. I will make sure that that is fixed uh, for our reels today, our reels tomorrow. It's a reels every day, man. It's the way it goes these days. But we have good content. I have stuff that I'm excited for that's coming up. So I hope you guys tune in. I hope you guys will be able to enjoy all of that and hope you're following along. And if you're not, get on board. Also, uh, make sure that you are rating and reviewing if you're already subscribed. Uh, if you are subscribed, you've done all that, Make sure you're sharing with your friends. Tell people about us. We'd really appreciate all the support. Anyone who is a Wisconsin sports fan, I think this is an ideal podcast for them. It is literally having a beer with people talking sports. That's it. That's all we're trying to do. It's a casual environment. We're not going too deep with the analytics. We're also not giving you dumb brain brain dead sports takes either. So we meet in the middle. It's a perfect combination of the two. All right, let's talk about Andrew Wiggins and why it pains Bucks fans to watch him do this. Some people are wondering why, they, what's the correlation between Andrew Wiggins and the Bucks fans? That's a fair question as we open this and why I bring it to the table is it really makes you miss Chris Middleton. It makes you wonder what could have happened with Chris Middleton and the Milwaukee Bucks and the Boston Celtics. I think we know our answer. We know that the Milwaukee Bucks would have won in five or six games, but this is the cold reality watching Andrew Wiggins dominate this series. Andrew Wiggins took over in games four and five and made a significant impact on both the scoring, the rebounding, and as well as flustering Jason Tatum. He's been so good defensively on Tatum. You watch what Wiggins does and you think, wow, that's exactly what Chris Middleton would have done. And that is a guy that has killed the Celtics in the past, Middleton that is, and Wiggins is doing the exact same shit that we saw Chris Middleton do for the Milwaukee Bucks. And that is the tough reality of it. It has nothing to do with the Jabari Parker, uh, potentially having Andrew Wiggins on the Bucks or anything like that. Obviously not a reality because Wiggins was taken with the first overall pick by the Cleveland Cavaliers. So the Bucks never even got a chance to sniff at who they called Maple Jordan, which is a nickname that we haven't heard for Wiggins for a long, long time, but it came to life again with his iconic performance in game five. This is the Andrew Wiggins game. It will always be known as the Andrew Wiggins game. It's 26 and 13. Wiggins picking up Steph Curry, who was probably at his worst all playoffs, really. I mean, 17 points. Curry did not make a three-pointer. It's the first time he has not made a three-pointer in a playoff game. It's the first time that Steph Curry has not made a, a three-pointer since November of 2018. It's absolutely crazy. Uh, but that is true. And the fact that the Warriors won this game convincingly leaves you thinking that Boston is dead on the floor. And it's just tough 
to look at this and not think that the Milwaukee Bucks are better. And you can say that's sour grapes, that's, you know, being a fan and it's being a little bit biased, but even people who are not Bucks fans are saying the exact same thing. And there was a lot of Chris Middleton appreciation going on this weekend because uh, June 10th was the a year ago. Middleton had 35 and 15 against the Brooklyn Nets in a kind of forgotten game in a rock fight against Brooklyn where Durant was incredible and Middleton was just a little bit better. And the Bucks were able to escape an 86-83 victory from and basically not be down 0-3. And if they were down 0-3, that series is absolutely over. So to not have that guy, the fact that the Bucks took this team to seven games is incredible in its own right. But the fact that they did not have that guy hurt so much more knowing that the Bucks would have been here. That the Bucks would be on the precipice of potentially a second straight title. That is going to it irk me for so long, man. It really is. And the Wiggins stuff is not helping. If Steph Curry continued to be iconic tonight and had another 30 or 40 point game and the media just went crazy with all their different takes about is Steph underappreciated? Is Steph this? Is Steph that? Like, I feel like we always try to find new topics with Steph and it's just regurgitated bullshit, really. Because, and I, I don't mean to be a hater on Steph. I like Steph. I, I don't want people to get that twisted. You hear the podcast yesterday, you hear the podcast today, you're like, oh my God, this guy doesn't like Steph Curry. No, it's not true. It's just, I think the media stretches really too hard with him. And I think that every sort of thing that Steph does is criticized. He's almost more criticized than LeBron in a weird way. I think that LeBron's criticism is a lot from guys like Skip Bayless and only Skip Bayless, honestly. And I think people take that and mold it into this whole LeBron criticism narrative. Steph gets it from all angles, right? And then he gets praised from all angles. It's like, oh, all the Steph haters, yada, yada. It's like, man, come on. it's exhausting, okay? So the fact is, is I could have probably lived with the fact that Steph Curry goes off or if Klay Thompson comes back to life or if Jordan Poole, you know, continues sort of this most improved arc. And those were the guys that took care of business for the Warriors and took down the Boston Celtics. I could live with that. Hell, I could live with Kelvin Looney being the difference maker. But because it's Andrew Wiggins, it makes you think of Chris Middleton. It just does. They're different players, but they play a similar style of basketball in terms of how you beat the Celtics. And Wiggins is doing exactly the stuff that Chris Middleton would do. And because of that, it hurts even more, right? It's kind of the last knife. It's the last twist of that dagger. That dagger has been in there since the Bucks walked off the TD Garden court in the middle of May. And that knife has just stayed there and it will stay there for a long time. But the final twist is watching Andrew Wiggins do what he's done in tonight's game, in the game, uh, in game four. That to me is like the last step, right? And to say, okay, this is all the justification you would have needed that Chris Middleton was going to basically flip that series. And maybe at some point it would give me peace in the fact that it will probably take a massive effort for the Celtics to come back and win this series. I just don't see it at all. I'm sorry. Like, I hate to be in the moment. I hate to have hyperbolic takes. But I do not see the Celtics coming off the map from this one. The reason why I bet on the Warriors tonight 
was just I thought the Celtics looked exhausted kind of mentally after game four. I think Tatum, yeah, there might be something wrong or he's just worn down. He's 24 years old. He hasn't been through the grind of an NBA Finals. All of these Warriors guys, most notably Steph, Draymond, Clay, have been through these wars. They know what this fight is like. I don't think Tatum is ready for this moment. I think he's a little bit too young. I think there is probably a little bit of injury stuff. I'm sure they will play it up more as Tatum's had more turnovers than anybody in a postseason, 95 to be exact. Jason Tatum is not a top five player yet. The fact that he was talked about as a top five player is completely ridiculous, but that's what it is. So after game four, you started to see a little bit of the life come out of the Celtics. Then in game five, it's completely gone. The Celtics climb the mountain, they get all the way back, and then they completely melt melt down mentally. Now you can blame Tony Brothers. You can say Tony Brothers has a vendetta against the Celtics. I guess he pointed at M- or M.A. Udoka didn't like how, or M.A., pardon me, M.A. said that Tony Brothers didn't like how M.A. pointed at him. And that was a problem. And if you're like, all right, Tony Brothers is the whole thing. Well, you got to keep your cool. You got to know that this ref does not like you. You got to know that this ref has had issues with you in the past. That is well established, okay? And so knowing that, you have to be mentally tough. And the Boston Celtics, while they've shown moments of mental toughness this series, not, not even the series, this whole playoffs, I mean, game six of the Bucs series as the Bucs are coming back and starting to mount this great sort of story and they're going to take game six, Jason Tatum puts us the bet. And then we go back for game seven and you know the rest. They have been mentally tough, but in this moment, when it mattered the most, when the chips were down, they were mentally weak. Marcus Smart completely fell apart. He completely lost himself. And instead of battling back, the Celtics could not score in the fourth quarter. And to me, it is dead man walking. The Warriors have a foot on the throat, just like the Milwaukee Bucks did. Now, could they fall apart just like Milwaukee did in game six, especially because they're going to Boston, not necessarily hosting them at Golden State? Yeah, absolutely, right? Boston could come out, make a ton of threes, the crowd's into it. It's a Thursday night. It's going to be rowdy. You're going to have people coming in from the U.S. Open that are going to do the U.S. Open and the NBA Finals that day. It's going to be a complete shit show in there. And it'll be loud and rowdy if they get a good first quarter, first 15 minutes of this game. If Boston comes off the mat and is up 14 or 15, that's going to be a good sign. But I don't know how much energy they have left. All of a sudden, the game seven to, with the Bucks, you know, taking that series of seven, the game seven that you took to Miami has all started to wear this team down. And the Warriors look like the fresher team. The Warriors look like the team that's ready to deliver that death sentence. I would be stunned if Golden State loses that game. Maybe I'll think a little bit differently as I get closer to it. But right now, I don't see a path to Golden State losing that basketball game, especially with the way Wiggins is playing. Because you combine that with Clay, who's been known for game six moments. Like Clay, Clay Thompson doesn't fuck around in game sixes. And I don't know why, but that's the moment for Clay Thompson. And he would love nothing more than to give it to the Boston fan base. And Steph Curry would also like to send Boston home. Trust me. 
And if Draymond has a moment, even though I think he's maybe the most overrated player right now in basketball, he's going to want to send them home. But to work it back to Wiggins and Middleton, this should be the Bucks moment. It was robbed from us. It's going to eat irk at us until the Bucks get their second title. And I really hope that we don't have to do this again in June or May where we're wondering because of a holiday injury or if Brooke Lopez goes down or heaven forbid if Giannis goes down or if just the Bucks fall apart. I don't see the Bucks ever really falling apart, okay? I really don't. But who knows, right? Every year, playoffs are different. We kind of talked a little bit about that yesterday, about always being in the conversation. You're not always going to win. I say it, I probably say it too much, but winning championships is really hard. And that definitely is a possibility. But I had a podcast, I think after game seven, the game seven loss and said the Bucs missed the goal and opportunity. I wasn't lying about it. I knew that they missed a chance at an NBA Finals. And the more that we see guys like Wiggins step up against Boston, the more that I get salty about it and the more that it's going to sit with me all summer and into the fall. Moving on to the Green Bay Packers and Alan Lazard. Now, Alan Lazard had not signed his tender. I think Alan Lazard didn't want to be at minicamp. I don't blame Alan Lazard. He's having a good summer, whatever. Wants to hook up with some Iowa State co-eds. I don't blame him. I don't know if he has a girlfriend or not, but I'm just, we're just going to roll with it, all right? And Alan Lazard finally sends his tender because he doesn't want to lose a million dollars off his contract. If he were to not sign his tender today, he would have lost a million dollars. Guess what? Cash rules everything around me. It's a known fact for everybody who is in football and in life, really. It's probably the case for a lot of guys who are joining the Live Tour uh, with the Saudi Arabia blood money. But that's another story for another time. Alan Lazard can be a number one receiver for the Green Bay Packers this season. I think that people are underrating what Alan Lazard can do. Alan Lazard's a good football player. I realize that he is not a number one like Devontae Adams. I fully understand it. I get that. But I do think that Alan Lazard can be as productive as Devontae Adams in that number one role. Because I think that you can have a quote-unquote number one receiver, and I use that in quotation marks, that's not actually a number one receiver. You know how in baseball, there are some teams who are successful who don't really have an ace pitcher. They don't have that one guy that stands out. The ace is kind of a revolving door. I think you can do that with receivers as long as you have the right quarterback. Could Alan Lazard be a number one with Jordan Love? Absolutely not. Could Alan Lazard be a number one receiver with like Derek Carr? No, I don't think so. But could Alan Lazard be a number one receiver with Aaron Rodgers? Arguably one of the best quarterbacks of all time? Absolutely. Look, Tom Brady made a living on not really having number one receivers. The only number one receiver Tom Brady had was Randy Moss. And Tom Brady made it out just fine. I think Aaron Rodgers can do the exact same thing with Alan Lazard. He can be his number one for this year. Now, I'm a huge advocate to paying Alan Lazard before the season starts, which we can talk about here in a bit. But I feel like Alan Lazard's season kind of got shoved under the under the rug because of just 
the production that Devontae Adams typically gives you. Like the season Lazard had, remember, he missed a couple games. He only played 13 games, or 15 games, excuse me, last season. So he missed two games. He only started 13 of them. Lazard caught 40 balls. He had 513 yards. He averaged 12 yards per catch, or per reception, excuse me. Yeah, per catch, reception, whatever. Same thing, eight touchdowns. He had 28 first downs, and he had he had a really good performance. His yards per game was not that impactful, 34, which was down from 2020 where he had 45 yards per game. Now, granted, smaller sample size because he only played in nine games that year. It's still really impressive. His yards per target, yes, a little bit down from last year and the year prior at 8.6, but this was Alan Lazard being more incorporated into that offense. And I do think that Alan Lazard can be a placeholder number one and be a competent number two if, say, a guy like Christian Watson breaks out, right? If Christian Watson breaks out in year two or year three, Alan Lazard can be waiting there and fall back into that number two spot again. And he is a productive number two. And that, to me, is why you should try to pay Alan Lazard and try to get a deal done. Now, the thought was that Alan Lazard was not signing his tender because he hoped to get a contract before the season started. I still think the Packers should really consider that. The Packers have $17 million in the cap for this year. They could easily front load that deal if they wanted to get off a Lazard contract in, say, year three or year four because some of the young guys have emerged, whether it's Watson, whether it's Juwan Winfrey, who I feel like is a Packer Twitter favorite, or Amari Rogers comes up big, or Samari Torre is a stud, like or Romeo Dobbs for that matter. Like if any of those guys become big and you don't have a need for Lazard, you can always move off him. You can always say, "All right, we're gonna now you know get off him because you have a front loaded contract, right?" And they have the ability to do it this year, and why not? Why not come in early and say to Allen, all right, we believe that you can be a successful player for us. A four-year, $60 million deal is a fine deal for Alan Lazard. I feel like Alan Lazard would take that. That's life-changing money for a guy who's an undrafted player. Like that's, that's really, really good money for Alan Lazard. And sometimes the undrafted players, this is going to sound bad, but you can take advantage of, all right? Like, the Sam Shields deal is a great example of this back in the day. Remember, we all remember Sam Shields, Packer legend, Super Bowl legend. Sam Shields got a very nice deal from the Green Bay Packers. Packer fans overreacted at the time. They were like, oh my God, we gave Sam Shields way too much money. There was a lot of that going on in the early days of Twitter. But if you looked at the contract, it was all front loaded for Sam Shields. Sam Shields got all his money at the start. And then they were able to move off that, that contract. Now, Shields got hurt. You can't predict that. But you could argue that the Packers took advantage of the fact that Shields is an undrafted free agent and never really saw legit NFL money and has kind of been grinding for it. Now, Lazard has a nice tender at $3.4 million. They could even bump it to $6 million and add some void years on it per Wendell Ferreira. I don't know who he works for, so I apologize. I just saw that that on Twitter today, um, which would be nice, right? 
But they could say to Allen, like, hey, look, we're going to give you 14 or $15 million this year. Maybe a little too much. But we're going to give you 12 or 13 this year and space it out however you want to do it. And there you go. And now you could say, Charlie, that's a little bit crimey. I understand that. But I, I also, this is a business, right? We have to think about it that way. And if Alan Lazard breaks out and has a massive year with Aaron Rodgers as his quarterback and goes off for 1,200 yards, 1,300 yards, well, the fucking price just went up. Like, the, the price that was yesterday is not the price today, as the great fat Joe would say. That will change. We cannot have that. To me, like, that's something that is avoidable for the Green Bay Packers. They can avoid that problem. Now, if they say, all right, we're going to, whatever. Whatever happens, happens with Lazard. We're going to deal with it. If he goes off and has a great season, we'll let a team like the fucking Lions give him $21 million next season. Or a team like the Texans overpay him. All right? We'll let that happen. And we're okay with that. And we can live with that because we have a stable of young wide receivers ready and raring to go. I think it is a massive risk. I do not recommend it. I think I'm a risk-averse person, so that's probably why. Because you're putting a lot of eggs in Watson and Rodgers and Dobbs, Winfrey, Torre, that these guys come up big and all of a sudden are these big, big-time players. It's, it's a lot to ask for. And I feel like Lazard provides you stability. He's also a great run blocker, which kind of gets forgotten, I think, in what Lazard can do. Um, I don't know if that'll limit him as a number one receiver, maybe. But maybe there will be opportunities for usually the Devontae Adams spot. It'll be assumed by Lazard, but yeah, maybe you need him for blocking and someone else takes that, whether it's Watkins, whether it's uh, Christian Watson. Watson and Watkins, by the way, that's going to fuck me up all year. It's not going to be fun. That's okay. We'll, we'll make we'll make it through. Uh, whether it's Dobbs, whether it's Winfrey, right? Like any of those guys could maybe, and I didn't even talk about Randall Cobb, who's obviously there this year. Packers are going to be all right at receiver. I feel like people are almost overrating the sort of loss of Adams. Maybe that's a larger topic and a larger discussion for another day. But you look at the stable of guys they have, and again, to that back to that ace pitcher and you know what you have in baseball, you don't have an ace, all right? Devontae Adams was your ace. You traded away your ace pitcher. But you have a lot of good two or three guys who can give you good innings and provide the production that you need and almost the sum of all parts equals that ace pitcher. I think that's what the Packers have. And I think if they really want some stability for the next couple of years with Aaron Rodgers, Giving Lazard a long-term deal would be a smart decision moving forward. Speaking of pitchers, we were just talking about pitchers. The Milwaukee Brewers in action against the New York Mets starting tonight in the Big Apple. It is a massive series for the Milwaukee Brewers for a variety of reasons. Number one, the Milwaukee Brewers just came off a losing streak. They have their first win. If the Brewers end up getting swept by the Mets, well, then the Brewers have lost, what would that be, um, 11 of 10 of 11 or something like that, it would be pretty fucking ugly. If the Brewers end up coming back and sweeping the Mets or they win two out of three, all of a sudden the narrative kind of starts to change about the Brewers' month of June. And if they could finish off a good series against Cincinnati, they will have a successful road trip. 
And on top of that all, the Mets are the best team in the National League. And when you're playing the national, the best team in the National League in June, it is, to me, a true test to see where you're at, to see what this team is all about. And when I say this team, I mean the Milwaukee Brewers. We already know the New York Mets are very good. We know that they do not really quit. They keep coming at you, which makes me nervous, right? That's just a, a general feeling. I do not like baseball teams like that. To me, the Padres are like that. The Braves are like that. The Cardinals are like that. The Dodgers are like that. Obviously, these are all very successful baseball teams. Phillies, to me, the Phillies are also like that, by the way. So if you were given another side of it, and, and sometimes, weirdly, the Pirates are like that. And they just do not quit. And that, to me, is like you cannot breathe. Even if the Brewers are up 5-1 to one in a game against the Mets, I'm still going to worry that the Mets could come back and just keep adding runs where it becomes a really tough, tough out. It's going to be rocking in New York, right? It's three night games. Summer's out. Summer's there. You're going to have packed crowds to watch these, these Mets take on the Brewers. So it'll be a great environment for Milwaukee to be in. I think it'll be a lot of fun. And I do hope that the Brewers thrive off it. I hope the Brewers really enjoy that. And I really wish they had Peralta and Woodruff. But I think Mets fans would tell you, they wish they had Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer pitching in this series. They don't. It will be a very fun one and definitely one that I keep a closer eye on than other series. If the Brewers completely look lost here, I'm not going to be pumping up their World Series hopes. If the Brewers make a statement and win two games out of three or they sweep, then yeah, we have to reset our expectations for this team and recalibrate. If they only win one, I'm not going to feel great about it. I'm not going to lie. I really think this is the this is, could be a turning point for the Brewers this season, in my opinion. This really could. Now, I love the fact that Christian Yelich has been red hot from the leadoff spot. He's batting 423 with a home run, six runs driven in. He's not striking out a ton. He's been a pain in the Mets ass forever since being a Marlins player, I could really see Christian Yelich having some moments here and really sort of continuing this pseudo breakout. I don't want to say it because every time we say Christian Yelich is back, he fades into obscurity, but he's up to 243. It's deserving of a mention. But as for the pitching matchups for the Brewers and the Mets, you kick it off with Adrian Hauser versus Chris Bassett. I love that there are Mets fans who wear Bassett Hound masks when Chris Bassett pitches and there's Bassett Hound barking. I'm sure I will get annoyed by it if Bassett is good in this game. Now, Bassett has struggled the last few games. To me, Bassett has looked like a guy who can pitch against good teams. Or I'm sorry, he can pitch against bad teams, but he can't pitch against good teams. If you look at his stat lines against the Giants, against the Dodgers, it's not pretty. It's not what you want from a guy who you hope to really be your third, maybe fourth starter at worst case scenario. Now, Adrian Hauser hasn't been much better. Uh, we've seen Adrian Hauser kind of fall apart the last few ga- few games, and I I do worry a little bit about Adrian Hauser. I'm, I'm not necessarily ready to like push a panic button with Adrian Hauser, but I'm getting fucking close, man. I'm not gonna lie. Like, I, I'm definitely... Definitely getting a little, and it's not, you don't need it right now because the Brewers have been kind of struggling sneakily with their pitching staff. Like Lauer, Ashby were both really bad 
over the weekend. But yeah, Adrian Hauser has been a little bit messy with the 10 nothing loss to the Phillies where he surrendered five runs and three home runs. And he surrendered five runs, eight total uh, against the St. Louis Cardinals. Three of them were unearned and two home runs in two out of his last three starts. Now he did have a Mets start or a Padres start in there where he was pretty damn good. So hopefully we get another good Hauser start and it's not Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or Mr. Hauser. I think that's what we're going to probably go with in the review if he struggles. Now on Wednesday, you have Corbin Burns. And again, it's another big start because Corbin Burns has really struggled the last two games out. And this is a major moment for him against a really good Mets lineup. He still has a 248 ERA. He still has a whip under one. I don't think anyone's ready to push a panic button on Corbin Burns' season. He's just had two really shitty games and looked rather normal in both of them. And the walks, you know, two walks there, four walks against the, the Phillies. He didn't even make it out of the fifth inning in both of those games. So I do think there is a level of importance for this game. And if he doesn't perform well in this one, I think you have to start asking questions about what has changed. Has Corbin Burns been figured out? Or is he just going through a rough stretch? Because you need your ace in these series. And you need Corbin Burns to be that guy. Now they have to face a lefty in David Peterson. And we know the Brewers against lefties, it's not special. Now, they do have Adamas back. They do have Hunter Renfro. They do have Andrew McCutcheon. So I do think some of the lefty stuff could be overrated, I guess, of the worry though, because of the, having all those guys back. Peterson has been a successful pitcher in terms of the Mets win games when he's on the mound. But he hasn't really – he's had definitely some issues, whether it be walking – guys or just giving up runs and hits in general so the brewers would best be patient against a guy like peterson and then lastly to wrap up the series it's aaron ashby versus i think taylor magel he spells his name so weird it's t-y-l-o-r but i think it's taylor which is fucking dumb so california it fucking hurts uh ashby against a team who's not great against lefties but alonzo and Marte crush so you have to be careful there. Um, definitely, a, hopefully, a bounce back for Ashby after a really rough start against the Nationals. And then McGill is just coming off an of injury. And he pitched all right against the the Angels. He only pitched three innings. I would imagine the Mets stretch him out a little bit more for this game. But yeah, it's it's going to be a big series. And you'd really like to get tomorrow tonight. You'd really like to win. Because if you win tonight, I'm not saying... No house money at all, but then you're feeling a little bit better because you get Burns. You've won two games in a row. You win another one. It's called a winning streak. You heard that from Lou Brown. So I, I really, really hope that the Brewers can can show me something this week. This is a big week for me in terms of the Brewers because if they don't, I think we gotta ask a lot of questions. If this, where is this team really gonna go? Now it's interesting. That I was looking at strength of schedule, and the Brewers have played the 26th easiest schedule to start the season. So you're like, okay, wow, they're gonna have a really tough second half. Not at all. The Brewers play the 27th easiest schedule down the stretch, meaning the NL Central is an absolute fucking joke. And the Cardinals won again tonight. Brewers head off. So the Cardinals now move a game ahead of the Brewers. And the Cardinals have two games 
today uh, in a doubleheader and a makeup for the with the Pirates. So who knows what will happen there? And it's too early to be worried about this shit. Like uh, Mets fans have been freaking out because they lost a bunch of games because the Braves keep winning baseball games. But at the same time, you do need to at least keep an eye on your enemy. And the Brewers and Cardinals have a massive four-game series next week. So this, to me, is a really good test to see what the Brewers are all about for these next couple of weeks. You have the Mets for three. You have Cincinnati for three, who's playing better baseball um, than they were last time the Brewers saw them. And Great American Ballpark is just a weird fucking stadium where weird shit happens. It's a cousin to PNC, which is the ultimate weird. Like, I think PNC is the upside down sometimes. And then you have St. Louis for four at home, and you have Toronto for three. That is a big stretch, in my opinion. That's a stretch that, I'm not saying will make or break your season, but if you can get hot there, I really like the Brewers' chances. I really like what could be the outcome there. And maybe then once you get the kind of softer part of your schedule, you can thrive. Because June is definitely a tougher month than usual with the emerging Phillies having to play the Padres and having to play St. Louis. And then you play Tampa Bay right after it, actually. So, and then you get Pittsburgh for four. And Pittsburgh, Chicago, Pitt. That's a really, really nice opportunity there for the Brewers after that Tampa series. Because then you get Pittsburgh for four, and then Chicago for three, and then Pittsburgh again for three. So they, it's right there for the Brewers if they just hold their water and show that they're one of the NL's best. Hopefully, the Brewers can come through for us this week. All right. Uh, I don't want to have anything really cooking for you at Chuck's Corner. I will say, though, the first hot day of the year is always a fun event in a weird way. Um, as a kid who grew up without air conditioning, uh, it was never never great. Like I had never really looked forward to hot days because I never had an air-conditioned house. I never grow, grew up in an air-conditioned house. I had air conditioning for a couple of years in college. I also had it when I was living with my buddy Mike. Uh, but I moved back in, in the middle of that. And then now my new house, or my, not my new house. I wish I had a new house. I'm looking, you know anything, holla at your boy. Uh, shout out to those interest rates going up. But I, um, I now don't have AC. And I, usually I will wait to get the AC unit in until you have some consistent like 90-day heat. Well... We have 90-day heat right out the gates here in middle of July, June, which is really early. Um, it's very early for me to be putting in the AC unit. This might be the earliest that I have put it in. Usually, it's like right around the 4th of July. That way, I start putting the unit in and we you know, beat the heat, shall we say. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we've had some brutal summers. I mean, was it, I, think, I can't remember if it was 2019 or 2020. Where it was like, we had the AC on, I think, every day. It was crazy. That might even have been at my old place. But, man, some you never know with Wisconsin summers. You just never know. Some of them, it's hotter than fuck. It's humid. It's muggy. It's gross. And some of them, it is just like, it's nice. It's little. You want it to get warmer, but you don't want to get too warm. It's a fine balance. And it, Wisconsin never seems never seems to reach it. It's one end of the spectrum or the other. 
my advice for big guys, and we I should do this. Actually, let's let's save that for tomorrow. We'll do part two tomorrow. I know we'll have the shot ski, but we'll do it as part of the shot ski of a big guy survival guide for hot summer weather. I'll give you my tips. I will tell you to embrace some stuff. I'll tell you to not do some other things. And just, you know, we'll we'll make sure that all our big husky guys are protected uh, as for the summer season rolling around. All right, that does it for today's show. Hope you guys enjoyed. Uh, make sure you're rating and reviewing. Make sure you're subscribed. Share with friends. Do all that. We really appreciate it. Back tomorrow uh, with just me. And then I think we'll do Mitch and I on Thursday. I don't know, though. Maybe we'll we'll do Tavern Keg tomorrow. I haven't decided yet. Um, obviously, the Brewers and Mets are something we want to hone in on. But because it's a Tuesday-Thursday series, we don't really have that ability to recap it. Uh, as that we need to do it late Thursday or early Friday, just not working with the schedule. So I'll talk to Mitch, see what he he would prefer. So maybe you'll hear Mitch instead of Mitch and I instead of just me tomorrow. All right, take care, guys. Have yourself a awesome Tuesday. Back tomorrow. See you. Bye.